you would now please open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. This morning we'll be giving our attention to Acts 2 verses 42 through 47, a short passage with an awful lot jammed into it. And if you would please stand together to express our reverence for God's written word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the living God endures forever. So here we are again as the people of God gathered to hear and to heed the word of God. Let's do that faithfully now together. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. There are beautiful gems in each and every one of these verses. And we ask now that you'd be pleased by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit to bless the reading and especially the preaching of the Word of God. We pray that through it, you might be pleased to convince and convert sinners, and that you would as well be pleased to build us up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. In Jesus' name, we pray these things with confidence. Amen. Please be seated. I'll ask a question that may seem a little bit silly, but it's actually an important one. Who is the most important person in church? A few weeks ago, I spoke much about the power of the Holy Spirit in a sermon, and I was gently encouraged by a friend to consider and remember, keep before us at all times, that the Holy Spirit is not just a power, but also a person, and I happily accept that encouragement, and you should as well that the most important person in church is God himself, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But in many ways, the text before us this morning focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit in and through the life of the church. And as I mentioned when I was praying, uh, this might seem like a short text, but it has just a lot of beautiful little pearls in it. Arguably, a sermon could be done on just about each verse here, but I, I won't do that. Uh, we will cover the five of them together, and we'll do that with the help of the outline that you have before you, considering first, spirit-inspired devotion. In some ways, the text before us this morning is both beautiful, but also a little bit controversial. The beauty is found in the clear and obvious display of the work of the Holy Spirit, building, establishing, and strengthening the church. The controversy if you want to use that language, is found in the things that are slightly extraordinary about this text and the work of the Spirit at this particular time. The signs and wonders that are accomplished by the apostles, how we should think about the remarkable number of people that are all being saved at once, 3,000 earlier in the chapter, and here day by day the Lord just adding over and over those that are being saved, uh, what some call uh, the very first revival in the New Testament, and that word revival has all kinds of interesting associations and different points of view on it. 
But I want to focus on the things that are most clear and the things that are the most beautiful. What happened when the Holy Spirit came upon the church? That's the point of the text. What happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, or if you will, into the church? Acts 2.42, I mean, it's just, it's just a gem. It, it, it's a gem with many gems, a diamond with many facets. All by itself, a whole sermon could be preached, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There are four things that when the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, that the church begins to do, and you note and should note, very importantly, the main verb here is devoted. Devotion, that's the theme. When the Spirit came, devotion followed. Devotion to the apostles' teaching, devotion to fellowship, devotion to the breaking of bread, and devotion to prayer. So the key idea is devotion, uh, the idea of continuing to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of doing so despite difficulty. Not simply a resolve to do something, but a resolve to do something in the face of difficulty. That's what devotion is. You see it in sports. People that resolve to do something despite the difficulty, even the pain that comes within it. You see it in professions. People that resolve to do something and they put their nose down and they study and they work towards a goal. But here we see particular devotion to the things of God. This word devoted pops up a couple of other times in Acts. It's worth mentioning earlier. We heard it in Acts 1.14. They were all with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In Acts chapter 1, they were devoted to prayer. In Acts chapter 6, a few chapters from now, the apostles say that we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. One of the most convicting verses in the New Testament for any pastor to hear. Devotion to prayer and the ministry of the word. And then in Acts chapter 10, the word comes up again. When the angel who was speaking to him had departed, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were in constant attendance upon him. The point is simply, when you think of a soldier who is devoted to his work, devoted to the cause, devoted to his station, at all costs, that's what devotion is. That's what is happening upon the church when the Holy Spirit now comes. It's interesting to see how the use of this term in the book of Acts highlights not simply the persevering work of the church, but the fact that the church will do this in the face of mounting persecution and opposition. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 2, it gives you this impression that at least here, the new church gathered had favor in the sight of all the people. But if you keep turning the pages, that favor goes down and persecution and opposition go up. Devotion's easy when everybody applauds what you're doing. Devotion is hard in the face of opposition. So the new church devoted itself to these four things, teaching, fellowship, eating, and praying. Which is your favorite? Well, let's take them in turn. In a certain sense, you could say these are not simply the marks of a new church, but they were the marks of a healthy church. And if you wanted to add marks of a healthy Christian life. Teaching is technically doctrine. And I wonder, when I say the word doctrine, and let just a little pause fall behind it, do you get excited? Ooh, he's going to talk about doctrine. 
Or is there a temptation to check out? I, I am, in some ways, uh, often surprised by the way Christians react to the idea of doctrine. Uh, little cliches, mantras that we've developed like, don't give me doctrine, just give me Jesus. And, and what a silly way to think. The history of Christianity is not based on a vague or abstract understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do, but a clear understanding of both. The difference between truth and heresy is a question of doctrine. The early church had to sort out doctrine, and a very important question. Who is this Jesus that everybody is talking about? Is he just a man? Is he God? If he's both... What does that mean? The two natures of Christ occupy much space in the early Christian creeds. And then came the question, what is the relationship between this Jesus, the God-man, and the Father to whom he prays and the Spirit that he would send? Are these three different things? Three different gods? Three different persons? One God in three persons. The last answer is the right one. Anything else is actually quite bad. So the early church had to sort out questions of the nature, two natures of Christ and the Trinity. The Reformation in the 1500s had to recover the church's understanding of the gospel. The issue then was not the Trinity, but how are we made right with the triune God? What is the gospel and the nature of our standing before him, the doctrine of justification? And then comes last century, when the 20th century lost its grip on the Bible with the advent of modern liberalism and all kinds of people ran around saying they believed in Jesus and no idea which Jesus they actually believed in. And with that came the cults that abound. We're saying positive things about the Bible and about Jesus. They even occupy the park behind my house. And just yesterday, two very nice young men wearing matching clothes, bright white, talking to a very important young man in my life, even offered to pray with him to a different God. Doctrine matters. It's not enough to say that you believe in Jesus if you happen to believe in the wrong one. The God that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons pray to is not the God of the Bible. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. And our Roman Catholic friends may have a right understanding of the Trinity, but a very wrong understanding of the Gospel. Doctrine Matters. Jesus himself said, unless you believe that I am he, Jehovah, you will die in your sins, John 8. So we should be devoted to the study of good doctrine, just as the early church was, both privately and together. The new church in Acts 2 needed to get its doctrine right. And so do we, and so do our children. But not only were they devoted to doctrine, they were also devoted to fellowship. I love this phrase. It's a great phrase. You love it too. This does not mean that they were simply just hanging out together, occupying the same physical space, talking about trite, irrelevant things, the football game, the weather, the news. Their devotion to fellowship was centered on the gospel and upon uh, the things of God. They were encouraging one another spiritually because they needed to be encouraged spiritually. And which of us does not? Which of us does not need spiritual encouragement? I once heard a pastor friend say that some people need counseling. Most people just need community. And there's something genuinely true about that. This takes devotion. This is why at the end of our service, one of the last things you hear is an encouragement 
to take time now and turn to the left and right uh, to encourage one another. And that, that encouragement is indeed talking about more than just the weather, the news, or the football game. It's focusing on uh, the more important things of the soul, the important things of heaven. This is what it meant for the early church to be devoted together, not just to teaching, but also to fellowship. They were devoted to the right things. And the reason why is because life is kind of hard out there. It's rough outside these walls sometimes. The world can be cold, dark, and lonely. Work can be challenging. Family can be challenging. Health can be challenging. Tell me what's not challenging and why we don't need to encourage and challenge one another when we are here. This is where the warmth and the fire are. This is where we come for that spiritual encouragement that we truly need. And the third thing that we need is listed here that they were devoted to, and I'll, I'll get a hearty amen, even if you say it only on the inside. They were devoted to food. They were devoted to eating. This is great. Don't overlook this. We need to eat. And how sweet is it that they were devoted not just to eating, that all by itself could be a problem, but they were devoted to eating with one another. Breaking of bread. Now, this verse, if you've read over this before, has been commonly understood in one of two ways. Uh, some have looked at this and said uh, the breaking of bread in reference here is basically the Lord's Supper, and others simply see it as a daily meal. Uh, I cannot make a strong argument either way, won't pretend to. The former actually seems unlikely as they are meeting together daily, and I can make a, a pretty good argument, I think, for weekly communion. I could not make one for daily communion. I don't think you could either. So it might be a little bit of a stretch. The latter is more likely that what is in view here is not a daily form of the Lord's Supper, but daily eating together alongside one another. And so if you accept that, you have a lovely portrait of this brand new church making a habit of eating with one another and that daily. Where does the best fellowship occur? Over food. If you tell me you want to talk, I'll make time for you. If you tell me you want to talk over a meal, let's meet tomorrow. That's how we work. Everyone loves food, and most conversations are enhanced by them. Some are too serious, perhaps. Uh, there are times when we need to set aside the distraction. But there is something to be said about nurturing our bodies at the very same time that we nurture and encourage our souls. That's what the early church was doing. Uh, their fellowship often occurred over food because the best fellowship normally does. How much better are those conversations enhanced when we are eating together? Food is a sort of social lubricant that sets people at ease and makes it more comfortable for us to spend an extra hour or so together over a table to linger into the evening. People got to eat. And that's true, not simply physically, but even spiritually. And so again, if this is a portrait, a small snapshot of not simply a new, but a healthy church devoted to doctrine, devoted to fellowship, devoted to eating together, then you can be thankful that one of the most important ingredients, pardon the pun, in a healthy church is people that can cook well. And for them, we praise the Lord. Finally, and in some ways climactically, they're also devoted to prayers. And note the way that it's put here in the text is not simply they were devoted to prayer, but they were devoted to the prayers. It's a little definite article there. What are the prayers that are referred to? Well, uh, this one is actually pretty clear. At this time in Israel, there was a custom of praying three times a day, three sort of set prayer times of the day. 
uh, that the Jews would set aside and they would stop what they were doing and they would pray. And particularly at the temple and the outer courts at this time, it would be quiet. And you would see people praying, sometimes even kneeling. This is likely what was in view. And it's on the one hand a great practice, you might say edifying. It is obviously not something that we hold to ritualistically. We don't have prayer times set aside each day in a ritualistic fashion. And yet, many of us actually have set times a day that we pray. Little devotional rhythms that you do. Could be early in the morning, before your family comes downstairs. It could be later in the evening, when you've gathered together as a family just after a meal. It could be the weekly prayer meeting that some of us uh, come to and enjoy. There are set times when the church gathers together to pray. And it's good to have set times that we're devoted to praying together. Prayer may be the hardest and the most important thing that we do together. It may be the hardest and one of the most important aspects of the Christian life. You need to pray more. I need to pray more. And we should all be gently encouraged to consider even uh, the manner of our own prayer life. Let me put it in question form. When do you pray? It may not be three times a day not ritualistic and set, but when do you pray? And not only that, with whom do you pray? What's beautiful here is that they're devoted not simply to prayer individually, there's a corporate nature to prayer. There's something beautiful about when the people of God get together to pray. You know that sense. It's one thing when you're on your own and praying, but there is a sweetness, a measure of fellowship that comes in praying together. Uh, that is really a delight and not only edifying. How much do you need to pray? How much do you those who you love need your prayers. How much do you need the prayers of those who love you? What would life be like without prayer? It would be a poor Christian life. So Lord, grant us grace that we might pray as an aspect of our communion, which brings us to our second point. Now I'll give you a little good news. The second point will cover more than just one verse. Spirit-inspired communion. In some ways, we've already hit uh, the high notes in verses 42 and a couple following, sort of drilled down just a little bit deeper with some nuances. <clears throat> but one of the things that should stand out to us, and we should almost get stuck on for a moment, is the word there in verse 43, awe. And awe came upon every soul. This is not awe in the like, sense of awe. This is awe in the sense of reverence. This is awe in the sense of holiness. Awe came upon every soul. What, what is awe? I would actually argue this may be a word that's gotten quite far from us. The very idea of awe, quite remote to us. The same word is sometimes translated fear or respect. It's a sense of being in the presence of God and being made kind of small by the presence of God, by recognizing that He is so big, that He is so holy, that we are so small, and we are so sinful, that to be in His presence is a serious and sobering thing. And that sense of awe is what informed, if you will, the climate of this early church's early meeting, to try to illustrate it. Awe is that feeling you get when you walk into a hospital and a person's life is on the line. There's something serious about it. Awe is that feeling you get when 
A bride walks down the aisle and you stand up and you look behind and you realize that the moment here is both beautiful and inspiring. That's awe. Awe is that feeling that you get in the presence of someone you highly regard and yet do not want to offend. And so you're careful and you're measured in your approach as well as in your behavior. These are just little illustrations of awe, but you get the point. Awe may be something that is missing in the life of the church. If you were to characterize the church today broadly, awe is probably not one of the words that you would use. In fact, the opposite of awe is probably how we would characterize it. Casuality, informality, indifference, convenience, consumerism. Those are the words that would strike. We often, we should all admit this, pastor included, come to church very casually. Very casually. A well-known theologian recently blew up the internet and got into all kinds of trouble for challenging what he called, and I know I'll get in a little trouble here, but you'll forgive me, what he referred to as coffee cup Christianity. The demise of awe. The descent of reverence. A trend, not just of drinking coffee during church, I really don't have that big of an issue with it, but more so people standing around talking during worship, looking disengaged and dis in many ways, as though they simply have come to be entertained and when the action is not sufficient, they look for a treat and something to eat, nibble on, something to amuse and entertain themselves with until something important happens again. I do not mean to make light of this too much, but I hope you get uh, the point. Awe is inspired by a sense of the presence of God, one who is holy, holy, holy. It is the holiness of God that ought to characterize our worship and inspire awe as we come into his presence with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. When the Holy Spirit came on this young church in Acts chapter 2, it was serious. You'd almost have a hard time imagining that they came in holding Cokes and popcorn. It was serious. There was a measure of awe. They were in the presence of God. The triune God of heaven and earth was in their presence. The Spirit of God, not just a power, but a person, was now filling his new temple. It was like Isaiah 40. Heaven came down, and the ground was shaken. Knees were hitting the ground as people responded in repentance and faith. Signs and wonders were being done to the apostles. There was a measure of awe that fell over them all. God was speaking and acting through the work of his Spirit. It was, if I can say it this way, it was awful. An old word with great meaning. It was awful. Not bad. Full of awe. It was awesome. Which does not refer to your skateboard move. Or the new hat you just bought. It was awful. It was awesome. And it brought awe. It gave shape to their communion. Verses 44 and 45 tell us that not only did they have this sense of awe, but it trickled down into the very little details. It got very granular. They had all things in common, and they sold and shared all their possessions. Uh, I enjoy reading different commentaries on different, you know, on the text I'm going through. This one was was sort of interesting to me. R.C. Sproul got a little unhinged on this point. He might have had a, a thing or two to say about communism, capitalism, and socialism. And the point of the text is what is not happening here is some sort of a forced redistribution of wealth. 
This is not communism, nor is it communalism, as some witnessed in the late 60s. It is not taking from those who have and giving it to those who do not. It is rather the church voluntarily so nudged and prompted by the work of the Spirit of God, uh, so overwhelmed by the generosity of God himself who has now freely given his Spirit and salvation to his people that when they looked around and saw others who had need, they freely gave from their own hearts. And their giving was a little radical. They sold their possessions. I'm not going to argue that's a norm. It's not a rule. It's not a command. It's not necessarily normative throughout the rest of the New Testament. These are unique things. But don't miss the beauty of those unique things. Some unique things still serve as fantastic examples. There is an urgent sense of generosity, not a forced one, in saying that they had all things in common. Uh, this is not the free love of the late 1960s and the communalism that took place in that time. These are not open marriages. This is not sharing of body and property without boundaries, but rather sharing as defined by God and shaped by life within the covenant. Perhaps an easy and helpful way to look at it is this is heaven on earth. Where the people of God, in this moment when the Spirit is poured out, are unbound by earthly constraint and concern, so much so that they just act as though the world is ending. And they give away all their possessions. They have all things in common. They are rejoicing. And that note of joy, uh, juxtaposed to awe. Joy and awe at the very same time. They were glad, we were told in the text. A life of joyful communion, marked by the presence of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What is so beautiful about this text is the freedom of it. It doesn't come as a rule. It doesn't become a rule. But here you see Christians that are free to be generous, encouraged to be generous, not guilted or forced into it. One last comment from R.C. that I very much appreciated. I'm not sure why he went this direction, but it caught my attention that what stood out to him the most about his father, his earthly father, was his generosity. How much more his heavenly father. What motivates the church, the people of God, to have glad and generous hearts. It's the generosity of our God. It led to a very generous church. This, by the way, in my view, is a very generous church. You have a reputation for being a very generous church. The worst thing you could do in this church is have a baby or move. You will get bombarded with meals. You'll have to tell people to stop coming. They won't leave your driveway. It's beautiful. That's what a generous church should be like. It's also why our deacons are wore out from generosity, why we need more. Generosity is a beautiful work of the Spirit. Know what the people of God do in verse 46, flowing from this. They attended the temple daily together. They broke bread in one another's homes. They were glad, and they had generous hearts. They were generous, note the nuance here, not simply with their possessions, but even with their time. What would be more valuable to you? Harder to take from you? $20 or 20 minutes? Some hold tightly to their treasure, but some hold even more tightly to their time. And here you have the church generously giving of both, not simply their 
possessions, but I'm, I'm equally struck that they were daily, didn't they have jobs? Families to provide for, burdens to care for. They were daily together at the temple. They were daily together for prayer, at least these three set times a day. They were daily, in one fashion or another, in one another's homes. You, you could almost sense, it, it's almost a little bit reckless, isn't it? It's almost just a little bit reckless. But maybe a better way to say it is there was something unique that God was doing in his church, particularly at that time, in that way. A church that is generous with time, talent, and treasure is not only healthy, it is beautiful. And what flows uh, from the spirit of generosity uh, is an enjoyment, a level of joy. And I want to put the accent on it here again. Uh, They did not share their time, talent, and treasure because they were even told to. They did it freely and willingly. A very important principle. It's one thing to be told to give up your time, talent, and treasure. It's entirely different when you just simply do it out of a generous and willing heart. And what was the fruit of that? Uh, They were joyful. Joyful. There's a great word. They had glad and generous hearts. They had joy within as they embodied the fruit of the Spirit without. We sometimes hear, you sometimes hear, perhaps even sometimes say that we struggle to have joy in life, struggle to find joy in the Christian life. Perhaps one of the reasons that we sometimes struggle to have the joy that we ought to have, and I mean this gently, but perhaps the reason we sometimes struggle to have joy is because we are simply put too self-absorbed too focused on ourselves. What you see here is a church not focused on itself. And that's why they were joyful and glad. Our minds have been shaped in many ways by the culture in which we live. And you would not argue with me if I said we live in a very self-absorbed culture. The very nature of our social lives are defined by words like, I find this comical, friended, liked, Followed. All those words are all about you. Socially craving to be friended, liked, or followed is a very self-absorbed manner of life. And we even sometimes view the church that way and ask questions like, what did you get out of church today? Is that really the right question? It's not. It's not a biblical question. Years ago, someone said that we have reduced God to something like a like a, a therapist in the sky, like, like a genie in the lamp. That, you know, he just kind of sits there and he doesn't bother you much, but if you need him, he's there. He's a pretty good listener. He's got some rules. You need a little bit of advice. He can help you out if you're in a pinch. Uh, that's the very opposite of what you have here in Acts chapter 2, where God uh, is not that. He's <clears throat> not simply a rule giver, a divine listener. Uh, one who is barely present in our lives, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church in Acts 2, the world was turned upside down. People's lives were turned upside down. Those that were headed this way now started heading that way. Those whose lives were defined by themselves now define their lives by someone else. They had all things in common. They were glad and they were generous. When awe came upon the church, so also did generosity, and this beautiful, blissful fruit of the Spirit, which was joy. And this leaves us to one last final joyful point. The Spirit-inspired expansion of the church. 
I love this last line. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This is great. Here you have this new church. The Holy Spirit's come upon them. Great signs and wonders are being done to the apostles. But underlying all these things is the real point in the perpetual ministry of the Spirit that transcends Acts 2 and comes all the way down to November 26, today, this year. And here's the point. Jesus made promises, and the book of Acts is the display of Jesus carrying out his promises in history through the work of his Spirit. And what is the great promise that Jesus made? It's that he would build his church. That he would build his church. In Matthew 16, Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. But roll the ball forward, play the tape forward against the backdrop of that great promise in Matthew 16. In Acts chapter 1, he said to his apostles, Now it's time. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And when you do, you will go to the nations. And those nations will begin coming to me. That's exactly what he said in Acts chapter 1, and exactly what you begin to see in Acts chapter 2. The nations now are coming to Jesus. On one day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. Regardless of what your thoughts are about revival and history and the so-called awakenings, or as one person put it, the not-so-great awakenings, all kinds of opinions on the thing. But here, what you can't deny is the work of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 souls were added on one day. And here at the end of Acts chapter 2, he continues to add day by day. Notice the move, 3,000 in one day. Then he continues to add day by day. Do you know what Jesus is still continuing to do? Even now, that flows right out of the soil, right out of the water of Acts chapter 2, he is continuing to add to his church day by day those who are being saved You even saw it today. Jesus carrying out his promise that he will build his church. Jesus carrying out his promise that the gospel will go to the nations. How many of you seated here are Jewish by descent? And yet, here you are gathered. And what are you doing? You're gathering together in the presence of God. It may not be day by day in the temple, but you're gathered together on the Lord's day. And here there's a spirit of reverence and awe. Here there's a spirit of devotion, of fellowship, even generosity. Here there's the gladness and joy inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when you pause and think about it, many of you were not here even two years ago. Three years ago. Some of you were not baptized five years ago. And here you are. Many of you were. But do you see the point? The Lord is continuing to do exactly what he said he would do. And this is one of the things that makes the work of the church so beautiful and exciting. Jesus is carrying out his promise. The Holy Spirit is not less powerful because time has passed. The Holy Spirit continues to add to his church day by day those who are being saved. What's happening today Around the world, as the gospel is preached, the gates of hell are being stormed, and captives are being rescued out of darkness by the light of the gospel, not because of great preachers, but because of a great gospel. 
God is still adding to his church. This is why we not only preach the gospel, this is why we plant churches. Last week, one of our own was ordained and installed as a church planter. And at least in my mind, uh, one of the great reasons that we plant churches is to evangelize people that are not yet a part of the kingdom of God. To fill, if you will, the empty seats with those to be brought into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith. This is why we send missionaries to the end of the earth. And in a few weeks, we'll be raising money to that end with glad and generous hearts. And yes, you're free to sell all of your possessions. But you're not forced to. This is why we're excited to raise up the next generation of kingdom servants, not just pastors, but church planters and missionaries who are the the young men and the young women that in a few short years will be looking at their faces on postcards and praying for and remembering uh, their time here when they were young or being trained, and now they're out there doing the work that God has called them to do. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, the perpetual work of the Holy Spirit, what he began to do in the early church, what he began to do in the early pages of the book of Acts. The Spirit of God continues to do. He builds the church through the work of the church. And I want to make a final point or two as we look to the conclusion. Even now, the work of the Spirit is still seen. I mentioned in the beginning that there's something slightly controversial. A couple of things here are a little irregular. The church selling all their possessions and giving things away so freely. That's, that's not a norm that the New Testament treats like a norm any more than the signs and wonders done by the apostles. If someone tells you that they're an apostle, feel free to run away screaming. They're not. The signs and wonders that were done, the healing and the raising of the dead, all of these things were unique at a place and time in the book of Acts. Uh, just as some of these other things. But does that mean the work of the Spirit is done? Because the charismatic gifts of particularly healing, raising the dead, and things to that effect had a particular place in history. To say it differently, uh, what spiritual gifts is the Spirit of God still granting to His church and using in and through His church? And the answer is many. And they are diverse. One commentary rightly points out we should stop looking for the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit and rejoice with glad and generous hearts about the ordinary gifts of the Spirit that God continues to give to His church. Let me say it uh, just a little bit differently. All of God's people are not called to speak in tongues and raise the dead and do the things that you see in the book of Acts or here even in this chapter, but all of God's people in one fashion or another are gifted by the Spirit to serve in the church. We have what we call spiritual gifts. Things that God has enabled us to do. Things that you individually are uniquely able to do in ways that perhaps even others are not gifted and able to do. And when those gifts are well employed and deployed to the building up of the church, beloved, there you see the Spirit of God at work. Still at work in and through the church. Let me put a point on it. One of the things that you see here in this new church is health. Not simply right doctrine, a healthy embodiment and practice of right doctrine. So to say it differently, a healthy church is one that is actively embodying the gifts of the Spirit throughout the life of the church in ordinary but faithful ways. A healthy Christian is one who has found his or her spot and serves joyfully, generously, with gladness of heart. 
So let me ask the same question at the end that we asked at the beginning. Who is the most important person in the church? You know it's not me, and you should know it's not you. It's the three persons, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. It is Jesus who gave his life and died for the church, who was raised by the Holy Spirit and now sends his Spirit to his church. And when Jesus said, I would send my Spirit to my church, please capture this, he never said, then sometime later I'm going to take it away. He's not an Indian giver. He continues to give his Spirit to his church. And the Holy Spirit is with us. In fact, all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are with the church. But you are here, not as the most important person, but someone so important that the Lord added you to his church. You are, in a certain sense, a gift that God has given to his church. The young man who has received this warning is a gift that God has given to the church. The old woman who has been here for many years is a gift that God has given to the church. Beloved, you are here. And you are not only a gift, you are gifted. And we are at our best. The church is at its best when we find those gifts, when we use those gifts with glad and generous hearts. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we thank you that your heart is generous. We thank you that the joy that we enjoy is something that you have sent as a fruit and gift of your spirit. We thank you foremost for the joy of our salvation that Jesus came into this world to die for sinners, to be raised triumphantly by the power of the spirit, that even now the Holy Spirit is given to the church not only to convince and convert us from sinners to saints, and to build us up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation, but also to assure us that we are the adopted, blood-bought sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We belong to the Father in heaven. We are part of that grand inheritance that Jesus has secured. And so we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are in the church and with the church. And we pray that more and more you would help us to recognize the gift and the work of the Holy Spirit, and that we would be desired to manifest those gifts and graces in ways that bring glory to your good name, all for the building up of your church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.